was uh, younger, there was a sportcaster in Baltimore uh, that uh, was a favorite of mine. His name was Charlie Ekman. Uh, so you're showing your age by saying, oh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, he was a larger-than-life personality, uh, a guy who had a reputation for telling it like it is. Interesting background, he came out of the Army. He had been an athlete in high school and actually was in the Washington Senator's farm system uh, before he was drafted into the Army for World War II. And he wanted to keep physically fit and keep his eyes sharp, which are important for baseball players. And he decided to do that by volunteering to referee games, basketball games, in the Army. That led to him having a career as a referee, first in the minor leagues, and then in 1951, he debuted as an NBA referee. And he was very colorful as a referee, and as a result, got a lot of attention drawn to him. And when he was 32 years old, the owner of what was then the Fort Wayne Pistons, which ultimately became the Detroit Pistons, thought it would be a good idea the first time in history to hire as a NBA coach a referee, and he hired Charlie Ackman. Three years in a row, the Pistons made the playoffs. Actually, twice they went to the NBA Finals and uh, didn't win either year. And then in his fourth year, the team got off to a, a rough start, and he was fired. He decided to go back and be a referee. He never got a coaching opportunity again, nor did he ever get a chance to be in the front office uh, of a basketball team, but he was a referee. But that sort of soured him a little bit on the fact that uh, he didn't have that opportunity. Now, no one would ever mistake him as an intellectual. He was not an intellectual kind of a guy. But the reason I bring him up today is he had a saying that stuck with me for a long time. He would always say, an expert is anyone from out of town. And in today's passage, there's a corollary to that, which is that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Uh, let's read Mark 6, 1 through 6, and I'm using the uh, English Standard Version. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And then the conversation changed. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Jose, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, 
A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now this story of Jesus being rejected by the people of his hometown, the people of Nazareth, the Nazarenes, actually is presented in all three of the synoptic gospels, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark place it chronologically in the same place and are almost identical in telling this story. Luke is either talking about a different time or he decided to move the story to the very beginning of Jesus' public uh, ministry. But there's so many similarities to Luke, although typical of Luke, he has much greater detail in the telling of the story, that it seems to me that it is probably the same story three times. Because in Luke, at the conclusion of their taking offense at him, they actually drove him out of town and were clamoring to throw him off the cliff. Uh, Jesus was able to miraculously disappear among the crowd. I kind of think if that was the reception originally, he wouldn't have come back for a second time. But in any event, here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is returning to Nazareth after a period of ministering in Capernaum, which was to the north. Now, Nazareth at the time was a village, most people think, of about four to 500 residents. So there would have only been one synagogue. Nazareth was predominantly Jewish at the time. And Jesus is around halfway in to his three-year public ministry at this time. Mark presents this story in a way in his gospel that is preceded by five parables and then five miracles, and then this story of Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. He chooses to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which would have been a thing that a rabbi would have done, even a traveling rabbi. So for the people of Nazareth, they had Jesus Christ in the flesh in their midst. And it appears that the people of the village recognized, actually, Mark says, they were astonished by his wisdom and his power. But that favorable recognition was fleeting. The conversation changed, and he was recognized just as a carpenter, just as the son of Mary, just as the brother of his other siblings, and basically 
He's like one of us. Now, interestingly, there's a little bit of a controversy. There are some who think the description by calling him the son of Mary was actually meant to identify him as an illegitimate child. In the Jewish culture at the time, a son was always referenced as the son of his father, not the son of his mother. I don't think that's actually the case because in Matthew, in the same story, he's recognized as the carpenter's son, the son of Mary. So I don't think they were necessarily trying to make a claim about Jesus in his human nature as being someone um, who was illegitimate. I think they just were recognizing him as someone just like us. And the result, we're told, is that the people took offense at him. Now, this phrase, take offense at him, uh, is a long Greek word that uh, I'm going to butcher when I try to pronounce it, but it's escandalizanto. And it comes from a shorter word, scandalizio, and that word means to put a snare in the way of somebody, to cause them to stumble, to uh, give offense. It's actually used in Mark 4.17 when Mark recounts the parable of the sower and the seed. One of the descriptions of the sower is that he tosses some seeds that fall into rocky soil. And in the parable, Jesus says... The seeds that are sown in the rocky soil are like people who take faith initially, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And that word there is interpreted, they fall away. So the idea of them taking offense at him is that they were seeing him as someone that could cause them to stumble, to get in their way. Now, after that, Jesus observes in our passage that a prophet was without honor in his hometown. And we're told as a result, Jesus left town unable to do any mighty works, miracles, except that he healed a few folks. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. In Matthew, it actually connects Jesus' decision not to do mighty works uh, with the unbelief. In Matthew's recounting of this, it said that he was unable to do mighty works because of their unbelief. So I think there's four points that I'd like to make today um, out of this passage. The first is that Jesus, through his teaching, delivers wisdom. The parables that precedes uh, this story in Mark all showed his wisdom. The people were actually, the word says, astonished by his wisdom, 
that was contained in his teaching. And in other places, Jesus' teaching is described as teaching with authority. And that idea of his teaching being with authority meant in the Jewish culture that a rabbi was extra special. There was something unique about him that, had, that he had been given a way of teaching with authority that wasn't like the way the other rabbis taught. So the first point, his teachings deliver wisdom. The second is that Jesus, through his works, demonstrated power. The miracles preceding his return to Nazareth demonstrated his power. The people, once again, were astonished by his power. And it turns out, before he left Nazareth, he did lay hands on some people and healed them. But the third point for all of this is despite his wisdom and power, he was rejected, and not only rejected, the people took offense at him. He was evaluated from his fully human nature. The conclusion was that he was at best the same as us. Not only was he ignored, but rejected. People took offense at him. He didn't meet their expectations of the Messiah. And the reason I think it's important to see that is in the story in Luke, the story has more detail to it, and it says that when Jesus returned to Nazareth from Capernaum, and when he began to teach, he stood up, as was the custom of a rabbi, and he read from the scrolls. And it was from Isaiah 61 that he read. And let me tell you what he read there from Isaiah 61. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sat down, which would have been the custom, and he began to teach by telling them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was a clear claim that he was the Messiah. Jewish people understood Isaiah 61 as a description of the coming Messiah. So in rejecting him, Part of it was that he didn't meet their expectations as a Messiah. We know from the Gospels as a whole that the Jewish people were really expecting a warrior king, someone who was going to defeat 
the Romans and put the Romans under the control of the Jewish people. They had not yet realized what Jesus taught in Mark 10:45, where it says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the third point, despite his wisdom and power, he was rejected. The fourth point out of this, though, is that because they rejected and took offense at him, they missed blessing. He was prevented from doing mighty works because of their unbelief, except that he healed a few people. Now, my first impression when I read this story is that I want to judge the people of Nazareth. Can you believe they rejected Jesus when he was in their midst? He was there among them, and they rejected him. But I'm not so sure that's really the message here. A couple of commentators have said the following. Sometimes we can also reject Jesus because he does not fit our expectations, desires, or demands. Our political allegiances can be stronger than our faith in the gospel. We stick to our habits, even the bad ones, because they seem too difficult to change. And another commentator said, Jesus could not do much in the lives of the people in Nazareth because they were offended at him. The same is true today. If you're easily offended at Jesus, don't expect him to do many miracles in your life. There are certainly times in my life when I don't recognize Jesus in my midst. There are times in my life where I think I reject Jesus in my midst, and there are certainly times in my life where I take offense at Jesus in my midst. And after examining myself, as we did at the end of the prayer time with Jen, I realized that I am missing out on blessings that Jesus has for me. In Mark 9, 16 through 24, which will be coming up in a couple of months, it says, and when they came To the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast the spirit out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them and said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water, trying to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I think that's our prayer today. If you're like me, if you're like the Nazarenes, and if you're like the father of this boy, we believe, but we need help in our unbelief. Are we missing blessings because we reject Jesus in our midst? Should our prayer be, Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are blessed to know the rest of the story, unlike the Nazarenes, who didn't have the favor of seeing your passion, the death on the cross, and your resurrection. We, Lord, see all of those things. We know that you were fully human, and we realize that they only recognized him in his humanness. But, Lord, we're aware of your divinity. We see the rest of the works. We hear your wisdom constantly uh, in sermons, in reading the word, and reading books about you and about your son, Jesus. And Lord, we have all believed, but there still is a sense in which we have within us some unbelief. And so our prayer today is the same as that prayer. Lord, we don't want to miss out on the blessings that you have for us, that you have for our family, that you have for our church, for our city, Lord, for the world. So Jesus, we believe, but please, Lord, please help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.